mention, mention So strap on in because we're talking about the mention I'm Sam Wilson. I'm Zach Schneider. And I'm Liz Tory. Nerd Shit is the podcast where we talk about all your favorite nerdy movies and series. And do deep dive, spoiler heavy discussions on them. We're going to talk about all the things that make them work. And all the things that make them suck. We're also going to handle disagreements in a respectful, non-toxic way. All the while taking everything with a healthy dose of humor. After all, it's just entertainment. Everything doesn't have to be so serious. I'm ready for hibernation. Mm-hmm. Ready for hibernation? Is that your time of year? Is it, are you gonna take yeah. the Are you gonna take the hundred year nap? Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Odin sleep. Yes. <laughs> I, I am going to emerge into a small cocoon made of blankets, uh, inviting no one else. I yeah, know maybe maybe my cat Artemis can join, and then uh, round about February, March or so, people can rouse me, and if I see my shadow, I'll hide back into the den. But you know, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, not time. Six more weeks of winter. I never really. <laughs> said what the hell that was all about so this is just like six more weeks of just winter weather because like i'll think like the, the calendar says like when the seasons start dead Look, or whatever you just, you just gotta trust the psychic rodent it knows okay <laughs> sure i'm just dumbfounded that we stood around to watch this rodent to see what he thought of his shadow did he see a shadow? I don't know. He kind of glanced at it, but he didn't react, so it, he may not have seen his shadow. Ooh, this one's going to be a tough year. <laughs> <laughs> uh, jury's still out on this one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Goddamn pagans. <laughs> I do actually love this time of year, but I will say that there comes a point, at, like usually towards the end of February, where I'm like, towards the, right at the end of winter, I'm kind of over it. But to be honest, yes. I kind of feel that way about all four seasons, to be honest. Like, fall is maybe the only one that I, I, I feel I could last all year and I'd be fine with it. But even then, it's like, I, I'm always like, I'm over summer by the end of it. I'm over winter by the end of it. I'm over spring yep. when spring starts, but that's mm-hmm. a whole other thing. But Spring <laughs> spring can fuck off for the most part. I don't yeah, know. I this, like uh, end, end of spring has a few nice days, but. I do. I'm, I'm definitely a fan of taking the 100-year uh, nap in winter, which I think that's what Aang was doing, right? He just took the 100-year nap. Yes, he woke up from the 100-year nap, and it was just like hey you just decided to get some shut eye you know you can't can't blame him things are getting stressful and yeah we are talking about avatar the last airbender today we're talking about avatar the last airbender book one water this is the original nickelodeon animated show uh we got 20 episodes to talk about so let's go into it but this will be full spoilers for the first season of avatar the last airbender you know they are making a live action version which uh it's the second attempt at making a, a, a live-action adaptation of Avatar, but if you must do it, I think probably doing it as a show probably is the way to do it. Yeah, so full spoilers for book one, but... I mean, look, uh, kind of going through the, these early episodes, like, I do like uh, the beginning of the first episode, we have this narration by Katara, which does come back every episode, but it's different in the first episode, and... I gotta say, like, I sometimes I go back and forth on fantasy shows and movies that start with this kind of narration exposition dump, but there are certain situations where I think it works and is actually necessary, and I think that the reason it works so well here is because we're given just enough information to understand basically what the setting is and what's going on, and everything else we can discover as we go. Right. And I think that the show hits a good balance for that, so in general, I think the, the first episode is really good, I think, The Boy in the Iceberg. It really sets yeah. up the characters, it sets up the world. I mean, what'd you guys think of it? Yeah, as, as a setup, it is a really solid foundation. 
foundation gives you that strong mythic foundation and the I, I agree this is one of those cases where it does help to get a very broad overview of the setting in that opening narration without telling you too much else it's like all right we have vaguely idea what the main conflict is you know a few of the interesting things about this world and where we're starting out go okay Fantastic. I think the intro works for a couple of episodes, and then I'm glad I can skip it now. The chapter one, I do love it. I love having the intro take us into chapter one, because it does really set the mood. Mm -hmm. No, it really does. And I remember watching this show for the first time. So my my my, my background with this show is I, I was 13 years old, and this show had been airing for like a year or two. I think it was in the middle of season two in terms of when it was airing. And I kept seeing ads for this show and I started to just get really curious about the show because it's like you know this just looks really different than anything else Nickelodeon is doing right now and you know and, and I was still like into Nickelodeon like in terms of like I was into the Spongebob's and the Fairly Odd Parents and all that but like when it came to like this show like I kept seeing these ads where it's like you know what I'm really curious about this so and this will date when this was, but like I, I, uh, you know, my mom took me on like you know the monthly or weekly whatever trip to Blockbuster, and I saw the first volume, which is the first four episodes of the show, and in a DVD available for rent. And I'm like, I want to rent that because I want to start watching this show, and. I was home alone, like, I think my mom dropped me off, I think she took uh, Randy, my brother, to, like, a doctor's appointment or something. I, I remember I was alone in the house, and I watched this show, and this intro came up, and I remember when that main Avatar theme music started, and... I was fucking in. Like, the music I was fucking in. It's like, this is yeah. fucking epic. Mm -hmm. This is a Nickelodeon show? Like, what the fuck? This feels like Lord of the Rings. <laughs> like, this is, like, so cool. Like, and, like, what, watching this episode, like, immediately I'm like, okay, so this Saga guy, he's kind of a dick. I feel like, you know, like, Katara is, like, she's, like, unsure of herself. And then we get this kid, Aang, who... The thing I love about Aang from the very beginning of the show is that he is this, he is the predestined hero trope, but I like the fact that not, it's not just a rejection of the call, it's like this interesting thing where he's 12 years old, and it's not this thing where it's a kid protagonist who, like, wants to be more mature, wants to be older, like, Aang just wants to be a kid. Mm -hmm. That's all Aang wants, and I think that that's what makes him an endearing character, is he just wants to be a kid, he just wants to goof off and, like, ride, you know, kangaroo llamas or whatever, like, you know, it's just, and I find that really endearing about him as a protagonist for the show. I think yeah. like, the very first scene that we see with Aang does such a good job of showing that conflict. Because when we first see him, he is this bizarre, mythical, glowing figure inside an iceberg. And then the first words out of his mouth are, do you want to go penguin sledding with me? Yeah, he's undeniably tied to this mythic destiny and the entire world seeing him as this big figure. But yeah, he does just want to be a kid. He doesn't want to have that destiny. And that is, it's kind of a rejection of the call, but it's also kind of, I love this show. That's, that's no secret at all. Um, but it is also kind of the idea that in this wartime, innocence is lost so often. And that's, that's yeah. a big part of all these characters is they, and that's one of the revolutionary things about them is that in their time of war, they're just trying to get a little bit of innocence and happiness wherever they can get it, which is not often because they are frequently stuck with the reality of it. I didn't watch the show until I was in college and I went to college late. I didn't go straight off to college. 
So I, I don't know. I sat down and we would watch every Monday. We would watch four episodes and that became our tradition. So I, the, the show pulled me in right then and there because I could just focus on it. And it's fun. It is a fun show. I just want it to be known that it, I, I don't remember what episode it was, but there is a much older podcast that we did where Liz is on record saying that they don't like this show, but that they like the M. Night Shyamalan movie. I just want to say that that audio Damn is it. on file. Yeah. And for a Why long time, I honestly, Why you gotta call me I, I honestly believed you. And then I, I realized recently <laughs> that you're just completely full of shit and that you're yes. just like, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> because like I, I was like okay we're gonna do it like, I, I really want to see why Liz sometimes, doesn't like this show and it's like <laughs> sometimes, sometimes it's fun just to say something just to see how everybody else in the group reacts okay and I cannot help myself I am a horrible motherfucker and I will do that <laughs> as long as you don't like bullshit your opinion of the thing that we're currently reviewing no, because right. like if you just if you just like give something like a two out of ten that you secretly love i'll be like well i feel like our podcast has no credibility now <laughs> yeah. like that's you know? fucked up yeah no that's different that's completely foot, different yeah <laughs> i will say that my my shameful secret is that i watched the show after the movie which let me tell you was a pleasant surprise when i was like well that wasn't great. I liked Iroh, though. And then I watched the show, and I'm like, that was great. I liked Iroh. Not the same character, interestingly enough, but... <laughs> well, that, 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 see, that's acceptable, because you went into the movie, like, not knowing that yes. the movie sucks and the show was good. It's, it, right. it's not one of those things it. where if, if you... If you <laughs> You know, like, like you, if you went completely blind, I mean, I, I know a lot of people have discovered this show late, especially in the past couple of years after it's been on Netflix like that. Like, I think a whole new generation is discovering this show now. And even, yes, even uh, people who, you know, are older than the original uh, target demographic are like discovering the show and just re really discovering, wait, this is actually just a really good show. And yeah. I think that, that that's something that you're kind of saying to Zach about how like it, it's, it's that that loss of innocence with kids. I mean, it's no secret, you know, Brian Kanisko and Mike DiMartino have talked about the, the genesis of the show and how they were pitching this idea of this kind of martial arts uh, fantasy show to Nickelodeon. And Nickelodeon was like, OK, this is interesting. We, we might want to actually do something like this, but this is Nickelodeon. So the characters have to be children. That was just yeah, one of the I mean, network mandates. You know but that. It, but because it's Nickelodeon, because like they, they just don't make shows about adults most of the time. And it's it's like because it's that's not, not because they, they want for kids who watch this show to be able to see themselves. But at the same time, like I actually think the fact that they are kids actually adds a, it, it has an interesting wrinkle to the show. It does. It does. Yeah. It really does. It's so interesting, like how many things, you know, we're, we're actually kind of, you know, like, as we, we talk about the the idea of, like, studios and networks, like, interfering with creative vision, like, there's actually a number of things about this show that were, like, studio notes or executive notes that actually ended up making the show better. And because yeah. this to me is like the other side of that, because I, I've been listening also to the, uh, the uh, there's an official Avatar The Last Airbender podcast, which is really good, where the, the co-hosts of it are Janet Varney and Dante Bosco, who, but like Janet Varney plays Korra on Legend of Korra and Dante Bosco plays Zuko in this show. They, they, and they, they've interviewed uh, DiMartino Kanitsko, and they also interviewed one of the network executives who was working at Nickelodeon at the time. And apparently it was actually that executive's idea to have Zuko be in the show because the 
original pitch was that the Fire Lord was going to just be the villain. And there was like a, a network guy was like, wouldn't it be cool if you had this antagonist who was also a kid? And then DR2 could just go like went off like for, you know, a couple hours and they came back with this whole pitch. All right, what if the Fire Lord had a son who got banished? And they, they came out with the whole fucking mm-hmm. story. It's like, to me, that's like a healthy relationship between a studio and creatives when right. you can just have these ideas be bounced back and forth and like, oh, okay. I'm, I'm going to take your idea, but what if we add this thing and, you know, not all the ideas are going to be home runs, but there's going to be some, some gold nuggets in there, you know? Exactly. And you come in with yeah. that and yeah. you have the Fire Lord who, and I need to stress, this is not actually a complaint against the series, is a very one-note villain. And then you have Zuko, who is one of the best characters in television, full yeah. stop. No, absolutely. I mean, Zuko, even just in season one, I mean, I, well, like especially in the entire show, but even just looking at book one, like Zuko is such an interesting character and just has such a great arc over the course of even just season one, you know, of like we, we view him as a villain at first, but then even early on, like we get these B-plots He's much with more him. complex, yeah. And we, we find, yeah, there's, there's a lot of complexity there and we find ourselves rooting for Zuko in a lot of these B-plots, you know, it's like... It's just, it's just as interesting, even though his goal is diametrically opposed to the goal of our of our main mm-hmm. trio. Mm-hmm. You know that he, he is absolutely the antagonist of season one. Him along with Zhao, I think, are the main antagonists of season one. But it's interesting how Zuko can also be his own protagonist, in, 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 even even in season one as well. So I I honestly think we needed a flat character so that Zuko would work out well in the way that he did. Well, and I think in season one, I think the flat villain really is Zhao in my right. opinion because yeah. because Ozai is the overarching villain for the whole show but I think Zhao, Zhao to me is the flat villain for season one right you know yeah. that's, that's what I'm saying because he absolutely is a flat character but a really fun villain a really fun yes. flat villain you know and Ozai is frankly less of a character and like he does become a character later on but in season one he's more he is the face of the Fire Nation. Yeah. He's the overarching spirit of imperialism and conquest. Yes. Was Jason Isaacs, right? Jason Isaacs is Zhao, yeah. And uh, Mark Hamill is uh, Ozai. Yeah. Damn, that was a good casting choice both for both of them, oh, frankly. Yeah. It was. I mean, talking about great casting, I, I just want to talk about the pairing of Dante Bosco and Mako mm-hmm. as Zuko and yeah. Iroh, respectively. Like, you talk about, like, great chemistry between even animated characters who have great chemistry. Like, Zuko and Iroh just have some of the best interactions to me. And, like, they do. And, uh, again, uh, listening to stuff that Dante Bosco said, Dante Bosco has actually worked a number of times with Mako prior to this show, in which Mako always played either his dad or his uncle. <laughs> so they had already filmed, they had already formed that connection, that bond, that bond as actors. Yeah. And a lot of times, you know, they weren't able to do this every time, but a lot of times the actors were in the booth together whenever mm. they could whenever they could work out the schedules, too. They weren't just uh, in isolation. And I think that that really helped a lot of the chemistry between all the characters. I agree. You know, between uh, Katara and Sokka and, and Zuko and Iroh and like, like all, all these all these pairings of characters, you know. Having that energy to feed off of, just they complement each other better. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I was going to say, really, my favorite character on the show, though, I, I think Zuko is probably the best written character on the show and has the best arc on the show, but my favorite character on the show is Sokka. I'm just going to be honest. Like, because here, talk about a great arc, by the way. 
This is a character who honestly is an asshole in the first episode. It becomes yes. like the most likable character by the end of the season. Right. <laughs> and it's not one of those things where they all of a sudden just write him differently. Like, he has experiences that humble him, and he learns from those experiences and becomes a better person as a result of those. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, I mean, I mean we, we get into, you know, the, I, I know I'm jumping around, but we get to the Warriors of Kiyoshi, where he is misogynistic at the beginning of the show, and he gets that misogyny beaten out of him. Mm-hmm. And yes. he learns from that, and he humbles himself, but like... But it really makes a lot of sense with this character because you even see, like, towards the end of the season, uh, the Master Paku storyline. I know the Northern Water Tribe and the Southern Water Tribe are different, but they're still, like, they're still kind of the same. Like, they're sister tribes. Yeah. So, like, you see, like, how patriarchal the the Water Tribes are. And you see, okay, that's why Sokka is the way that he is, is because this is what he was taught. Exactly. Like, honestly. You know, and like, I know Osaka Katara's dad is a good dude, but he probably has some of that, you know, beaten into him as well to a certain degree. Right. But like, Sokka had a life experience that caused him to grow out of that early to expand his mindset. And I've heard debate as far as whether if this show was made today, whether they could write Sokka in the way that they wrote him in the beginning. But I'm glad that they did. Yeah. Because there's something about having this character who's one of the main characters who is close-minded and and is a, a misogynist. And we see him yeah. grow from that, yeah. you know? In a very we organic do see him way. Grow yeah. From that. yeah. Archie Bunker would still work today. And so would Sokka the way that he was written because of the way they were written. Because they change. Mm-hmm. They gradually change. They're not stuck in their ways. They're open to having a wider worldview whenever they get there. But both characters do the best they can until they know better, and then they do better. Yeah. I love seeing that in characters. In some ways, that almost feels like a whole running theme through the show. Like, Zuko is obviously a fantastic example of it. Even my personal favorite character, Iroh, he's mm-hmm. a character who you don't see it at first, but then you realize he has already gone through most of that arc himself, and that's why he is able to have such wisdom for other characters is yeah, he started out as an absolute dickbag. Um, literally no better than his brother, and then life changed him, and he grew through experience. And you, you only see a bit of that in this season, but you do still get some of that impression. Well, speaking of growth, I like the fact that Katara is like the waterbender of the group, but she's really bad. I like that she's bad at waterbending at the beginning of the show. Yes. Like, that's one of those things that, like, and and I was divided on that when I first started watching the show, but then, like, when I view the whole book one as a whole, I see, okay, I get what this is, you know, like, because th- that waterbending scroll episode, I used to be really annoyed that Aang picked up the waterbending faster than she did. But I-, I realized that, okay, this is all part of her getting past her own barriers, her own mental mm-hmm. blocks. Mm-hmm. And I also, frankly, think Katara is just one of those learners who learns by being taught. Right. You know, there are people who are book learners and there are people who need a teacher. I think Katara needs a teacher. But when she has a teacher, she suddenly fucking becomes a master. And I guess like a weekend. Yeah. You know, it's like, it, fe- it feels a little fast at the end. But like, but I. I think that they earn it, but they do. Her arc feels like it's more becoming more self-assured and getting out of her own way. Yeah. Um. Like, do, do you guys like see it differently in terms of like her character journey in the f- season one? No, that's that seems to be a large part of it. It's becoming more self-assured, and it's not that she was never self-assured or never 
stood up for herself. The very first time we see her, she gets into an argument with Sokka, calls out his behavior, and displays tremendous uncontrolled power. Yeah, it is finding that confidence in re- recognizing, yeah, your anger is justified and learning how to control it as well. Um, and that's, that's a lot of her arc because she is full of these impulses. She's full of anger and in the, in the episode We Imprisoned, you know, she's full of this passion to try and free people and a lot of her arc is figuring out how to channel that in an effective manner and not being told that, you know, she's wrong to have these passions, just figuring out how best to use them. I feel that is most of her arc during this season. Going back into these episodes, like that second episode, The Avatar Returns, I think one thing that I'll say about that episode is it was the first episode that really started to endear me to Sokka the first time I watched it because there's there's two things. Number one, it's maybe foolish bravery, but it's still a lot of bravery when he – that, that Zuko ship is like bearing down on him when he's on the ice wall and he's just like obviously terrified, but it's like, well, I got to defend my home. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like for all he knows, he's about to be crushed. So like I think that endeared me a lot to Sokka. And then the moment where Katara is, like, monologuing to him of, like, I know you don't think that, you know, that Aang is, I know you think that Aang is, like, bringing danger to the village, but we gotta go rescue him. And Katara's like, Katara, shut up. I'm with you. Like, let's go. Let's go save him. I I agree. You know, like, I, I just, I just love that early moment for Sokka, too, but. Yeah, so that second episode, I think, it's really just the, the, the part two of the first episode, but that, that's where we really see Team Avatar truly form. Yeah. And we see Appa fly for the first time. Appa is also a great, you know, character, too. It's like, I know he's an animal, but yeah. No, he, he just functions like super well. It's like, all right, we need a cute, we need a couple of cute animals for this show. Got it. One of them is an absolutely massive bison that flies. All right. Fantastic. <laughs> A beaver bison that flies. <laughs> His tail has to be flat and he has to have six legs. Six. This is something that I found out from listening to the official Avatar podcast. Do you know what Appa is, uh, what it, two animals Appa is actually a cross between? I'm, I'm just curious. I was thinking the, uh, what's that microbe called? The... Oh, the, I know what you're talking about. Called. Water bear? Yeah, the tardigrade. That's actually a good thought, actually. I could see it, yeah. I know I was probably wrong with that. I, I always say the beaver bison. <laughs> See, I like the idea of beaver bison. Yeah. What, what do you think, yeah. Zach? What, what do you think opposite cross between? Uh, I'm inclined to say, just based on seeing him, I'm inclined to say kind of a dragonfly bison almost. Oh, interesting. All right. Interesting, the actual yeah. answer, bison and manatee oh i can see that that's actually it yeah and a lot of people i I had that reaction too upon hearing it it's like oh that actually makes sense but it's one of those things it's like yeah (laughs) but because even the way he's animated as he's flying was is actually based on the way manatees move through the water like it's it's very much yeah and it's one of those things like once you once you understand that it's like oh i totally see that now that like he's totally a bison manatee i do also love the idea of having this flying creature with no aerodynamic features whatsoever yes (laughs) yes (laughs) absolutely 
the creatures in this show and The Legend of Korra are the things that hooked me into the show before anything else. You like the hybrid animals? Yeah, yes, I guess uh, I, I, think, really I think Momo is the lemur bat, I believe. I wanted one so bad. I love how even the penguins, like the one animal that doesn't have a weird cross name, are clearly a cross between seals and penguins. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's the thing. It's like, well, because, like, again, the Sky Bison, they are just called Bison. But, yeah, they are a bit. They are a Bison manatee in terms of the design. Like, almost all of them. There's very few non-crossed animals. Like, in book two is, you know, future spoilers, but not really. Foreshadow report. (laughs) There is a bear that's just a bear, but they make a point Mm -hmm. in saying it's a bear. And, uh, hey, by the spirit, like, his actual form appears to just be a panda. I don't think that's a panda cross with anything. If that is like angry form is like some kind of, I don't even know what the fuck that it's, is. Angry just like form a does a great job of saying, it's like, oh, okay. I, I buy that as a spirit. That is clearly not of yeah. this world. <laughs> it's like, I, I'm just imagining Korg from Thor Ragnarok. It's like, oh, it's like sort of like a panda. And then he becomes a freaky panda. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, in the, the Southern Air Temple episode is just a, a, a Really, a really dark episode, you know, early on in, in this kid's show of, like, finding out, oh, genocide was committed against my entire people, and my mentor, who was like a father figure to me, is dead. So, There's his skeleton. Hey, kids, everyone right. I know and love is dead. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm sad they didn't do it as a musical. Genocide. Genocide. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, you think about the fact that it's like, hey, it's a kid's show for Nickelodeon. Let's put some genocide in here. Right? Right? Yeah. Oh, wow, all right. <laughs> yeah, they just died. We don't know what happened. They When's just the died. When's the first time we're going to see uh, Monkey Ioso on screen? Oh, well, we'll see a little bit about Aang hanging out with him, and then we'll see his skeleton. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> also, he apparently killed it. everyone who tried to attack him, too. Just make it, you know, super He dark. was a G. <laughs> he was a G, man. <laughs> My favorite thing about this episode is not actually anything about the A plot. I love the B plot of Southern Air Temple, where it's, it, it, this is the first introduction of, of Zhao, who I believe is recently... He gets promoted like two or three times over the course of the season, but I think he was just promoted to commander when we first meet him. Mm-hmm. But yeah. it's when Zuko has the Agni Kai with Zhao. Fucking awesome scene. I love the yeah. Agni Kai between Zuko and Zhao. Um, it's a really cool sequence. I, I love the fact that, you know, Iroh just completely, like, a- after Zhao is a punk-ass bitch who tries to, like, shoot Zuko in the back after Zuko bested him, you know, Iroh just comes in and is like, nope. Not gonna do that. <laughs> yeah. I love those early hints you get where Iroh seems to be exactly what he's trying to appear to be. Just a funny, lazy, rotund, cheerful old man. And then you get the occasional hint. It's like, oh man, this guy's actually really a badass when he wants to be. Yeah. Completely, yeah, when he needs to be. casually and effortlessly throwing Zhao across the battle. Yeah. Like, oh, okay. Oh, yeah. I found it interesting that Zuko beat Zhao on their first their first fight. Zuko maybe lacks some technique at this point, but he does have a lot of raw power and may, frankly might have more technique than Zhao does based on the Deserter episode where where uh what's his face? Um fucking Zhang Zhang? Yeah, no, Zhang Zhang. Um, no, Zhang Zhang, that's what that it is. is. That is it. Where Zhang Zhang <laughs> is Zhang. like, yeah, he's my old student. He's like really just has no control. He's just like 
So that probably is kind of Zhao's, you know, he that's his fatal flaw is that he just yeah. is, is uncontrolled power. Yeah. My biggest complaint about the Southern Air Temple is that, you know, it was supposed to be a Southern Air Temple, but not one of them motherfuckers look inbred. So I didn't buy that it was the South. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's not, it's not the, uh, American South. This is like, <laughs> the Southern water tribe okay. also doesn't look inbred. Don't worry. I think it's season two. We get, we get those. It's fine. Oh, the swamp. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. The swamp's oh, yeah, coming. That's right. We're about to get, we're about to get to the Florida episode. God damn it. <laughs> Actually, not, not to get too hung up with this episode. My only, my only real issue with the Southern Air Temple is like the weird, like out of place CGI for the like opening of the air door sequence. Yeah. Like oh, I yeah. understand that was probably really hard to do as 2D, but it always just stands out to me. It's like, this just looks so different from the rest of the animation that just yeah. sticks out in a bad way. But, <laughs> I think the main reason this stands out is that it's not that this show, this show and Korra actually do use CGI at several points. This is just one of the few moments where you really notice it and it stands out. No, that, that's yeah, what it, it is. It's like, because the, the, there are other moments where CGI is used and it's a lot more naturally integrated. I think that that wasn't one. But to be honest, I think that they're, the, the animation for this show is remarkably good, even from the very beginning. You could tell that there were points in the early episodes where maybe they had to cut a little yeah. bit of corners or maybe. Maybe they mm-hmm. almost didn't even know exactly what kind of anime aesthetic they were going for. Yeah. There's even, like, a couple of shots in, like, Wars of Kiyoshi with, like, the Unagi sequence where, like, Aang's running on the water. And I'm just like, this just feels like a different anime style than the rest of the show is, like, influenced by. Yeah. You know? Like, like just a couple little moments like that where I feel like they're... they're it was the early episodes. I think they were still figuring out the show in some ways. Plus, it was the early 2000s. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the, the graphics, they were still figuring things out. It was still a pioneering craft. So, it you was. Know. And frankly, this show was asking a lot of the animators. Um, yeah. And to be frank, they did a fantastic job when it mattered. Like most, if they not did. all of the bending scenes really yeah. have a lot Phenomenal. of fluidity and style to them, even early on. But yeah, sometimes you do get a shot where it's like all right so we have one still frame of a village and we're just gonna like pan awkwardly in towards it or (laughs) we're not gonna like fully animate this old man's face because we don't have time for that it doesn't matter But yeah, no, but you, you gotta think of like the just the demands of a weekly episodic television series. Oh my god, with, yeah. with, with twenty with twenty episodes. And this is also yeah. season one, so they're still operating on that needs to prove themselves budget. Like the, the moment you start season two, and I don't want to get too much into season two, but it becomes super clear in season two that they were able to streamline that a little bit more, either through. I even more think money. they stepped it up, even just in the second half of the season. Absolutely, like even yeah. in season one, you know. Yeah, I would agree with that that they stepped it up in the middle of season one. But again, the animation really is remarkably good on this show, even even in it the is. first season. Like it's it's, it's mo- mostly hand like there's some CG, but it's mostly hand drawn, and like th- this show it's is just gorgeous. A small critique yeah and you know it's like i think 2005 is when the show started like it completely holds up like the visual is 100 there's nothing about there's nothing about the show that feels dated when i watch it i feel like the storyline is very simple for this first season i feel like it's very simple and that's my biggest critique that they go very stereotypical and very simple but that is a small critique because i still really enjoy the show and i always forget how much i enjoy it until i watch watch it again. 
You know, I've only watched it like four times, the series all the way through. But that's saying something. It's a good series. And I think the thing with that is I don't disagree that the story is simpler in the first season. I don't also necessarily think that's a bad thing. In general, I find that the overall overarching plot of Avatar The Last Airbender is pretty simple. And they lay it out to you what needs to happen from the start. Aang has to master the four elements, defeat the Fire Lord, bring balance to the world. And it is just the journey of how he gets there, of how everyone changes, that is so fascinating. And the fact that they really do dive into these characters. And it's not just Aang, of course, who goes on fantastic. It is pretty much the entire cast who goes on really fascinating character journeys. Um, even in this first season, um, you have that. And so, yeah, I agree that it is simplistic. The overall plot of the show of this season is a little simplistic compared to the rest of the show. Frankly, the rest of the show has a simplistic overall plot, but that's not a problem at all because they know how to use that. They do it well. Well, and I think the show also really does a great job of writing the line between episodic and serial, too, mm -hmm. because yes. like there is an overarching storyline, but a lot of these episodes can still stand alone as their own story, but still do something to contribute to the overall plot and to the overall characters. I think The King of Omashu, as an episode, is a really good example of that. That episode completely stands on its own, but it also introduces this character of Boomy, who, you know, is going to come back. It, it's the first time we see Earthbend. It's really the first time we're, like, immersed into, like, the Earth Kingdom mainland. You know, we've only seen Kyoshi Island at that point, which feels very far removed from the rest of it. But, it, it, like, it's an episode that introduces us to the Earth Kingdom and to, to King Boomy. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a really fun episode. The plot twist is a little bit obvious if you're not five, but, you know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I think the episode just works because King Boomy is such an entertaining character and it just yeah. is, is so weird and like off the wall and funny, you know. I will say I've always loved the twist at the end of the trials when Aang makes what in any other story would be absolutely the correct choice. It's like, oh, I'm supposed to think outside the box. I'm supposed to point at the old man and say that he's my opponent. And just the moment Boomy says... <laughs> Wrong choice. And then yes! straightens up. I'm like, holy shit, I love, I love this show. Goddamn. But he's secretly jacked and he's just like. <laughs> <laughs> Although he does say one thing which proves to be inaccurate, not to get into future spoilers, but he does say, You thought that he was a feeble old man, but I'm the most powerful earthbender you'll ever meet. Not the po most powerful earthbender he'll ever meet. True. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> But we'll get we'll get into that with book two, but he does he does make quite a run for it for quite a while, but Oh yeah. <laughs> Definitely the most powerful Aang's met up until that point, which I don't know how many Earthbenders he's met, but uh, no Aang did travel the world a little bit before taking his hundred year nap, you know, as as evidenced by the fact that he is friends with Boomy. Yeah. But well yeah. he met Boomy before. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, they, exactly. they, as evidenced by the fact that he was friends with Boomy, yeah, in, in the past, which like which how the fuck old is Boomy? I guess he's like 112 too but all right <laughs> it was great for his edge honestly <laughs> yeah <laughs> weird thought did anyone else get the impression that the next episode imprisoned was supposed to have occurred before this one if only because hmm. the reason i bring that up is that when they first see haru it feels like it's an odd thing that they've never seen an earthbender before but 
in King of Omashu, they just saw a lot of earthbending previously. You know, that's a good one. I, to be honest, I never considered that. I do think it's possible, or that, that maybe some of these episodes were, were be, kind yeah. of written at the same time, but not with a entire communication between them. Like, I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's, it's, it's possibility. But I still think the chronology of the episodes still works. Oh, yeah. No, you know, it's not like a problem at all. Yeah. yeah. Regardless of what the original intent may or may not have been, and I, I haven't heard anything, you know, in my, my own readings and my podcast listings about the show that that was the case, but it's possible that could have been the case. But regardless of the intended order, I do like King of Omashu being our introduction to the Earth Kingdom. Technically, Kyoshi is a part of the Earth Kingdom, but it still feels more yeah, removed. From nobody's it. an Earthbender there. Kyoshi herself yeah, sure. made sure to remove it. <laughs> I think they made a mistake in uh, the King of Omashu. What's that? I think that they missed out on an opportunity to call it the King of Omagosh. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> the King of Ermagerd? Yeah. <laughs> Ermagerd! I will say, the, another important thing introduced in King of Omashu was that we did get the introduction of perhaps the single most memorable character in this show the cabbage yes guy. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> i love the cabbage merchant they also start that this is like a really subtle recurring joke that i i kind of picked up on, a, on this watch through but it happens multiple times in the king of amashu and i think it's at a few other points in the show where Whenever somebody makes a joke that doesn't land, you just hear somebody cough. <laughs> like, they keep doing that. I'm just like, it's so subtle, but I just love it. I'm just like, yeah, it always happens like perfectly timed, you know? <laughs> but yeah, the thing I'll say about Imprisoned is that I think it's a really good episode, but I think that the thing that really impresses me about this episode is they managed to pack a lot into 24 minutes. Really, really probably more like 22 minutes. If yeah. You don't count like the mm-hmm. intro and, and, and credit. But, like, you think about everything that happens in this episode, you got everything in the village with, like, the old man and everything, and Haru, and, like, all the, all these things. Then, like, Haru gets captured. They have to get captured on purpose, and they go the, then they go to the prison. They have to, like, convince the prisoners, and then, like, get the coal and everything. It's like, really, a lot of shit happens in, in this episode, and yet it doesn't feel rushed somehow. Like, they, they, they did a really good job of, of writing this episode in a way where it was really tight, and they were able to fit a lot in. So, I, I, I and that's something that is true for a lot of episodes but i think it's like really true for for imprisoned in particular for me when i when i when i go back to it absolutely yeah uh also it's just some good voice actor guest stars in imprisoned because you got george takei as the warden and you have uh yeah. less, lesser known name but he's definitely a voice you've heard is kevin michael richardson uh, as tyro who is just a great deep bass voice it's just one of those like quick we need we need people to immediately latch on to this character as a reliable and both wise and powerful figure Okay, Captain Magical Bridge. It's fine. <laughs> he's actually one of my favorite voice actors because he he's in a lot he's in a lot of video games he's in a lot of animated shows and movies like and he he plays a few characters on this show like we'll, we'll, we'll kind of get to that but i think tyro is one of the more notable ones any other thoughts on imprisoned that is the worst old man ever <laughs> that old man but actually that's something that they, they kind of talked about on um it, 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 again the, the the official avatar podcast is that they were kind of talking about the idea of you know collaborators mm-hmm. in, in situations like this and in in occupied lands where there are some people that really are just that's the thing that happens mm-hmm. in in history when in occupied where, where some people are just so Maybe they're spineless. Maybe they're just afraid that, like, if I don't speak up, then I'm going to be found out and I'm going to be executed or put yep. sent off to prison or whatever. 
And so that that old man absolutely sucks, but I, I actually like that he was the one that, that turned them in because, again, that is something that, that does happen in, in occupied countries. Oh, yeah. You know? it Not is. to bring the mood down too much, but my grandmother was intimately familiar with those kind of folks in Poland. Mm. So, no, I'm For very sure. glad that it got included. Also, did, did they just, like, kill the fucking warden and all those guards? It's like, uh, oh, I hear cowards float, and then they, like, did fall, they and it's like, did they, did they die? I think they just died. You know, it was really um, never see them again. <laughs> we're not, we're not going to focus on that too much for the kids show but uh <laughs> we'll pour one out for you george today yeah. <laughs> i really like this winter solstice two-parter because we really get into the spiritual side of this show yes. learning about the spirit world about how the, the avatar is meant to be in addition to being the master of four elements is the bridge between the natural world and the spirit world so like it establishes that and then the two, the part two establishes hey not only do we have this quest but there's a time limit for this quest mm-hmm. so yeah. uh maybe pick up the pace a little bit stop fucking around egg eh? it's like stop stop fighting animals to ride and shit like <laughs> yeah it does it goes right back to that original thing we were talking about where this is a character who he's 12 he is in his mind 12 he's 112 but in his head he is 12 years old and he just wants a little more time to be a kid and he's not going to get that. Not even one more summer of it. Okay, I'm going to be semantic for a second. Chronologically speaking, sure, he's 112. But not only did he not age during those 100 years, he was essentially asleep and didn't have any new experiences. Con- he so yeah. he is honestly physically, mentally, and emotionally 12 years old. Even yeah. if just technically carbon dating, I guess he's 112. But, you know. yeah. but really, his consciousness is that of a 12-year-old. So we don't have to call the cops on him when he's trying to date Katara and shit like that. It's like... (laughs) 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 It's like, in this case, it's acceptable because, again, not only is he physically that age... He is mentally and emotionally that age because he, he didn't have he didn't have any age. new experiences yeah. during that. Absolutely, years, yeah. so. he's a twelve year old. Yeah, he is. He's a twelve year old that didn't want to accept his responsibilities, put his feet down, and decided that he wasn't going to grow up, so he didn't have to do what he didn't want to do for yeah. hundred years. <laughs> and unfortunately, it worked out. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of Iroh being a badass, I also love the B plot in the the first part of the Winter Solstice two parter yes. where he gets captured by the Earthbenders. It's yeah. like <laughs> I also just love um after he like does does that one escape attempt the earthbenders like immediately go the route of we're just gonna drop a giant fucking boulder on your hands it's like <laughs> yeah okay wow <laughs> it's like, all right uh it seems like an overreaction but uh sure you guys yeah you guys do. <laughs> Yeah, I just love that moment when he breaks free and all of a sudden is, you know, throwing around boulders with his chains. It's like, oh, okay, gotcha, right? I see we have all severely <laughs> underestimated this man. <laughs> and the fact that he can see Aang riding the spirit dragon, that's actually a really interesting yes. thing really early oh, on. Yeah. It's like, okay, there's a lot more to this character than than yep. we, we meets the eye. He's definitely been through some experiences that have given him some kind of connection to the spirit world where he can actually see spirit that nobody else can see. Oh, yeah. And I even love the little hints we get, not just that showing of his adventures, but the little hints we get of the past, him sieging Sing Se, and you get the impression it's like, wait, hang on, was this guy legitimately once a pretty bad guy? And it's like, 
Kind of. Yep, for sure. But now he's retired and he doesn't have to be nasty. Unless you count, you know, uh, hitting people with chains while wearing just underpants nasty. I mean, you know, what, whatever. <laughs> you know what? I'm not going to kink shame Iroh. He's, he's earned it. It's fine. They asked for it. They asked for it. <laughs> Absolutely. But I do like the fact that in that part two of that, that two-parter, that the, the Team Avatar is also helped by one of the Fire Sages, too, because that, in addition to, you know, some of the development with Iroh in particular, and even with Zuko, like it starts to kind of get us away from the idea that the Fire Nation are all bad guys, right? And even that, you know, the the Earth Kingdom and every in the Water Tribes are all good guys too, because like you know, a couple episodes from now, we're gonna get the episode Jet, where we have uh, uh, someone who's against the Fire Nation, who's a horrible person at, at first, you know. Like I, I guess, like what I'm trying to say is that for a kids show, there's a lot of interesting nuance mm-hmm. and and shades of gray that I think makes the show a lot more interesting that it's not as simple as the fire nation are the bad guys these are just different nations that are at war with each other and we have good people and bad people on all sides of it and i think that that's just something that i really appreciate about the show too absolutely and that this current war even though the fire nation is winning it, it the war is screwing them over too <laughs> exactly yeah yeah uh the water ring scroll i touched on like i this is probably the episode i've had the biggest 180 on because i actually used to really not like this episode and then i've come back to it on recent rewatches like wait this episode is actually great but again i i think part of it was my initial annoyance as like okay Guitar is like the one waterbender on the show, and Ang can do all four. Why is Ang so much better at waterbending than the waterbender? And I was starting to get into like, I was almost going to get to like feminist rant until like, but when I actually view it in the context of the entire show, it's like, okay, there was actually a plan for this. And like the fact that the rules do get reversed and Guitar does become the teacher for Ang for waterbending, I think it's like, you know, Ang has a lot of natural talent, but he has a harder time with discipline. And, you know, like for a lot of episodes, Katara has kind of been the moral compass and the voice of reason. And it's nice to see a moment where, without feeling out of character, she gets to make a huge, horrible, morally dubious mistake. I've made a huge mistake. (laughs) (laughs) Made a huge mistake. I even love near the end when it's being called out and Aang says it's like oh Katara it's not your fault that I was just mm, yeah it kind of is yeah. <laughs> that's like probably the most laugh out loud moment of this episode and what, what, what a, for this because like that's one of those that just sneaks up on me because like it's it's such like cliche dialogue like no don't worry it's not your fault and actually having a character just call her out and be like actually yeah. it's this is kind of all your fault yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And the fact that it's Ira, who's like the gentle, wise character, who's like, no, you just seeing it like it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. There's actually a lot of great Iro lines in this episode. Okay. There's like, this is a visual gag. I didn't catch this like the first several times watching this episode, but there's a, a part where Iroh is like checking out this like the monkey sculpture that's making like this big like grin grimace face. And there's a part where it's like the camera's like slowly zooming in on Zuko as Zuko sings something super dramatic. And in the background, Iroh is just making the monkey face to the camera, just <laughs> mugging to the camera. And it's one of those things that it's so easy to miss, but once you see it, it's like, oh my God, this is so fun funny like (laughs) i do want to go back to an earlier episode just for like this this show is full of fantastic gags like that the one thing i do want to circle back to is one of my favorite implementation of a classic trope 
in Imprisoned when they're with Haru's parents at his village. And they say, quick, everyone act natural. Yes. And then they just all stand around in bizarre poses. And you first you think it's like just a freeze frame. And then Aang <laughs> falls into a barrel and you realize that they did all just freeze in place. <laughs> in these incredibly unnatural poses. And yes. this, this show is just full of brilliant moments like that. <laughs> no, it it's is. so it, it, it's like I think like uh, Sokka and Haru are like appraising like a piece of fruit or something like that. It's like the and poses they're in are just Katara's like what's just going on? As many berries as possible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, I actually love that moment, too, because I agree, because it seems like a freeze frame until Egg falls over. It's like, wait, they actually were just frozen in that position? It's like, it's so good. No, I, I completely agree with you, Zach. You know, and, and then also, like, another great line in War Baby Scroll is like, Arose is like, have you spent so much time fighting each other? You haven't noticed your own ship has set sail. We don't have time for your proverbs, Uncle. Oh, it's an old proverb. Oh, you know, maybe it's like it they look at like, Maybe it should become a yeah. proverb. <laughs> <laughs> God, shout out to Mako, too. It's like, you know, he, he unfortunately passed away during the production of season two. Like, it, it, one, one of the all-time great actors, you know, on stage and uh, stage screen and voice. This role, Iroh, I think is like, this, this to me is like the cherry on top of like his phenomenal decades-long career. Absolutely. He just has such a fantastic range that he's able to go through with Iroh. And the character would have been a ton of fun no matter who was voicing him. And again, props to Greg Baldwin who voices him in the later seasons. He does a fantastic job. But Mako does bring so much more to the character too. I honestly think Greg Baldwin did as good a job replacing Mako as anyone could have done. But... And this is no respect to Greg Baldwin. He's a great voice actor. There was something missing after after Mako stopped voicing him. I'll, I'll I'll just say that there was like there's just there there's so much depth that Mako brought to this character while also making him hilarious. You know, absolutely. Uh, well, speaking of characters who don't grow up, let's talk about the Peter Pan Lost Boys episode of Avatar <laughs> Jet. You know, it's like this is why I think every time I watch this episode, it's like oh, they're the Lost Boys. <laughs> Lost Boys meets Robin Hood. <laughs> Yeah, definitely some Robin Hood, too. But it's like, what if Robin Hood was a dick? <laughs> <laughs> wow, Robin Hood, you just totally mugged an old man. <laughs> he had just enough for food. Well, it's mine now. Set him on fire. Yeah, basically. <laughs> this is also another one of those episodes where Sokka doesn't often get to play the moral compass, high ground, and straight man. But it is always really fun when he does. And... This is also one of those early moments where you do just get, you know, you get some great development with Sokka. It's like, okay, he does hate the Fire Nation immensely. He, when he first met Aang, just the idea that he might be a Fire Nation spy was enough to incense him and want to throw him out of the village. But he doesn't want to kill an entire, you know, village of innocent people just to hurt no. the Fire Nation and win the war. I I like seeing That's that That's not so. Well, it's getting a broader world perspective, which we've already talked about with Sokka, but I think it's worth saying again that it's like, early on in the show, you get the sense that Sokka's entire frame of reference to the Fire Nation is the military of the Fire Nation. And yeah. it probably, honestly, I mean, he's still, you know, kid, he's 15 whatever years old. It's like... 
in his mind, he it probably on, on a real level never really occurred to him to think about the fact that there are just normal people living in the Fire Nation. That yes. there are just normal civilians. You don't think about that, you know. And he doesn't like when when you're at war with somebody, you're not thinking about those people. And then like, but actually, you know, coming across this this old man who's just a regular civilian and like this whole village of people. I do like the fake out. This actually was a good twist in Jet because they actually got me the first time I saw this where I really thought they just wiped out a whole fucking village for a second. You know, when they do that shot of like the the little girl's doll swept up in the river, it's like... Well, if you're going to wipe out a whole village on a Nickelodeon show, that's the way that they would do it. Yep. You know, it's like, so the fact that the fact that we don't see anybody actually die, like, I just chalked that up to it's a Nickelodeon show. And in some ways, if if they had actually gone that route, I think just seeing the shot of the doll, I think would have actually been more emotionally affecting mm-hmm. than yeah. actually seeing people get swept up. So it's like, wow, this show's getting dark, but... I also like the <laughs> fact that Sokka did actually get everybody out in time because Save everybody. that was Sokka's uh, uh, chance to, to be the hero and to have that growth for as a character. And it's a great Sokka episode. You know, that's what it I is. love about Jet. It's a great Sokka episode. This is actually the episode where I do fall in love with Sokka. No, I totally I'm get like, that. He is just trying to be better. Yeah, that's the thing. He's trying to be a better version of himself the yeah. entire show. And and I, I think that that is what, what endears us to him as a character, for sure. Mm-hmm. And he does start to step into that leadership role. And I think after this episode, we start to see a, a turn. And that's what I like about the, these episodic episodes where they do stand alone, but the characters do learn from each of these episodes. Yeah. I do honestly feel like Katara and Aang start to take Sokka more seriously after this episode. I think so. Like I, you, you actually see that. It's like because like. There's always so many times where Sokka can actually be right about shit, and yet nobody listens to him. It's like, wait, maybe we should start listening to Sokka, because he's actually right a lot of the time, you know? And we tend to not take him seriously. Like, I think that this episode does mark a kind of a a shift in that. It's like where the characters do start to take him more seriously. Frankly, as the leader in the group, because, you know, he, he does kind of thrust himself into that role, but he is actually kind of the leader of the group in a lot of ways. He's certainly the one that comes up with the most plans, you know? Absolutely. And yeah, I, I do think this is kind of the start of when the other characters start to recognize that too. It's like, yeah, no, yeah, we, let's let's listen to Sokka's the leader. We're still going to do our things, but... No, for sure. Okay, the only other thing I'm going to say about Jet is it actually features one of my favorite fight sequences in season one, which is the fight between Aang and Jet in the treetops. Mm-hmm. So fucking good. It's really awesome. It's a really awesome fight. It's just like, Inventive it's just beautiful. Hell. So, again, it's not as much of an Aang-centric episode, but Aang does get a really cool fight scene in this episode. So, yeah, I got to give props to that. Okay, um, The, the Great Divide. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love this episode. Okay. I fucking love this episode. <laughs> go go for it, Liz. Tell us All why right. you love this episode. <laughs> it's, just, it's just so great because these people have been battling for fucking generations and they have no fucking idea what the truth is. <laughs> they bring food in when they're not supposed to because they know the other sons of bitches are bringing in food. So why am I going to suffer because of those sons of bitches? <laughs> and both are right about that. No, but I, 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 like the, I like how like cyclical like the other tribe is about that. It's like, yeah. well, we figured that they would think that we brought food and so they yes! would bring food there but because yeah. they did that we decided we would bring food anyway yes. it's like if, so we're, like, if either of us were we slightly less them? assholes about this we could have ended this cycle a long time ago but we're not so we're we are technically right about how much of an asshole the other guy is but they're assholes because we're assholes and 
I just love that they just hate each other. They hate each other. And then when they have to fight the same enemy to survive, oh my God, we've got some things in common. And then for Aang to come up and go, yeah, oh yeah, I remember this. This this was so cool. <laughs> they were playing a game. They were playing with the ball and that's what it was. And then at the end, they're like, oh my God, I'm glad you remembered that. And he was like, yeah, I, I just yeah. made it up. The sources that I made it to fuck <laughs> Yes. Generations of squabbling. <laughs> Done. So Aang lying is a, apparently a weirdly controversial thing in among some of the fan bases, like, no, Aang wouldn't oh, lie like that. On. Honestly, Aang is a good-hearted person, but he is also a trickster archetype yes. at the same time. And I, I, I actually like it when they lead into him being chaos. a trickster. I mean, know? it goes right into his fighting style. Like, yeah. the first several times he fights Zuko, he's keeping himself behind Zuko the whole time or redirecting until he can get him in the right spot. Everything about Aang is that trickster archetype for the greater good. Yeah, for sure. Do you think we can send someone into uh, Israel and tell them that they understand how they feel and just trick them with a lie? It was the Palestinians and the Israelis just hate each other because of a soccer match from when <laughs> Moses was around. <laughs> Moses and Abraham was was in a soccer match and there was a scuffle and they both get the promised land. They both get their own government. Just end it. You think we could do that? I'm not certain that's going to work <laughs> because I've seen how soccer fans act. <laughs> if anything, telling them that this was all due to a misunderstanding during a soccer match will just make it worse. <laughs> They'll burn the whole country down. Okay, yeah, you're right. <laughs> the reason I don't care as much for the Great Divide, and listen, and it's in my opinion, it's the worst episode of the entire show, and it's oh still it's still a completely watchable and entertaining episode, which is a testament to the quality of the show. Yeah. I'm just gonna yeah. say that that the worst episode is actually still pretty good. It's a throwaway. It is. That's my thing. It's like every episode, even the ones that are completely standalone, still develop the characters in some way, or develop the story in some way, or something comes back from it. Yeah. Nothing comes back from this episode ever. No. Like, it no. doesn't really develop the characters, <laughs> like, it doesn't really develop the plot, and frankly, they could have avoided this whole thing if they had just fucking flowed over the canyon and just said, you guys are on your own. Oh, the great divide. Like <laughs> Let's play over it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which, to be fair... The writers themselves realized a couple of seasons later. <laughs> <laughs> I I love this episode just because you do see Katara and Sokka, how they take at face value these people's stories, and then they come back and then they argue with each other on the differences that, that they're saying. And then Aang comes in with the, oh, it was just a, it was just a football game. Yeah, it was just a game. Yeah. Plus, we get to see uh, not Wilford Brimley. So. I love it. <laughs> yeah. I, I was the gonna say there's two things I'm gonna say that I actually do like about this episode number one the fact that they just made a character who is just Wilford Brimley yeah. and it's yes. just like I, I don't even think he's voiced by Wilford Brimley but they just made a character who looks and sounds exactly like Wilford Brimley and it's just That's like true. it's just so funny to me that they just did that like <laughs> and then the other thing is from from an execution standpoint I actually really like the way when they're telling each version of the story, they do different animation styles mm -hmm. for, for each yes. version of it. That was actually a cool creative choice. It I'll, was. I'll say it that. was. Absolutely. I also like the creatures. The creatures were fucking badass. The creature in this. designs in this episode, really cool. Yes. Mm -hmm. I'll actually agree. The creature designs are awesome in this episode. 
there's a couple of moments like I, I like the very anime moment where the leader of each tribe is are fighting each other and there's that anime moment where they think that neither of them scored a hit and then the guy's the tip of the beard falls off and then <laughs> her, her like her hair bun falls off <laughs> like it's like I don't know I, I just it's it's, it's just yeah, funny no, PG, you know? PG it's so good yes <laughs> yeah yes. <laughs> it's so good it's not a horrible episode it's to me it's the worst episode of the show but it's still not a horrible episode right. so I'll, I'll give it to that it's a really good take on human nature yeah. and how something so stupid can tear people asunder and and they don't even know what they're fighting about they're fighting because they were fighting that's why yeah i i love the episode that's so funny i yeah. i love that it's your least favorite <laughs> It's considered a least favorite of a lot of the fan base, but I have noticed there, there, there's there, been, I think, a more recent wave of defenders of this episode among mm. the fandom, too. Mm-hmm. So I, I, you're not alone in that, Liz. I'll, I'll say that. But it is immediately followed by The Storm, which to me is one of the best episodes of the show. Oh, yeah. This, no like, arguments just, at all. Yeah. I love the arc of the storm. Like, clearly the story with Aang is fantastic. That's done extremely well. It's also a story that we more or less know how that came to be. Um, but it does it does show us a little more about who Aang and who Zuko were as people. Where Aang is our protagonist, he's our hero, and we're told a very shameful part of his life. Something that he is immensely not proud of, that indirectly might have caused this war. But I like how Katara points out, it's like, yeah, you might have died too if you'd actually stayed. There's no way of knowing. Exactly. Then we see another point that from Zuko's point of view is very shameful, but not because of anything he did wrong. And we see that Zuko was once a bright, compassionate, you know, loving young man who has just the worst fucking father. Goddamn. He still is. Yeah. That Zuko is still in there and somewhere. I like that we see that, that in this scar. episode. Um, yeah, that we when do. push comes to shove, when his crew on his ship are in danger and the Avatar is right there, he does choose to save his ship. Yeah. But early on in the episode, though, where he's like, the safety of the crew doesn't matter. And that one guy is walking by at that one moment. He just gives this look Ooh. like, what the fuck? <laughs> the safety of the crew doesn't matter? Like- what? <laughs> I'm jumping overboard right fucking now! (laughs) Fuck this place! And I do also want to say, we don't know much about the character yet, but we do get our first glimpse at Azula, and the very first thing we see about her is her just grinning madly as Zuko gets his face burned. It's like, well, that tells us a lot about her. But I I love how everything in this show was planned out, too, that that, they they don't even draw attention to her. She's just right there, and the plan was there like they knew that azula was coming so mm-hmm. i love that i love the foreshadowing the sprinkling of foreshadowing too just a little salt and pepper for you <laughs> yeah little little salt and pepper foreshadowing some thumb, thumb. Or a little seasoning mm-hmm. of foreshadowing on your uh <laughs> on your fish <laughs> which is apparently the only payment Sokka got from old fisherman dude <laughs> Oh, well, they needed food, too, so... It does yeah. also contain, like, this This is a very happy episode, but it does have, again, an absolutely brilliant line. It's like, I'm too young to die. I'm not, but I still don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> I 
love that too. Yeah. It will always be me. I'm not, but I still don't want to. But the only thing I'm going to say about this episode is we start to establish the parallels between Aang and Zuko, mm. how the, these characters are actually two sides of the same coin in very unexpected ways. My favorite moment of writing in this episode, to, to the point of, it, it honestly gives me goosebumps when it happens, is when Katara tells Aang, you know, like when she's consoling him after he's feeling guilty, and it's like, no, it's like, it's good that you're here now because you give people hope. And then we cut to Iroh, and Iroh is saying, you know, things will never go back to normal for Zuko, but the important thing is that the Avatar gives Zuko hope. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love yeah. that so much because it's like, yeah, Aang does give Zuko hope, not the way that Katara means, but I don't know. It's just so interesting to me that j just just that just that little bit of writing. It's so good. It's so good. It does let you know that Iroh and Zuko are not the ones to fear. Yeah, that they're victims in this as much as anything else. Exactly. No, absolutely. It's like Zuko is a, a good guy deep down, but like when when you when you watch this episode, you understand why he is kind of an insufferable little shit for season one. It's yes, like, I get it. Like after Zuko is literally punished horribly by his father for standing up and saying the right thing and doing something honorable. The fact that he's not only punished for doing the right thing, but he's punished by his father and literally permanently scarred physically, emotionally, mentally is, is scarred. It goes through this, this scarring experience. And his father throws him out of the fucking country and says, you can't go, come back. It's like, it's given this task of like, you know, because like Aang is even back at this point. It's like, don't come back unless you bring the Avatar back. He's basically saying like, go fight Santa Claus yeah. and bring it back. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. like, go get me a unicorn. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's just like, when we really think about, you really contextualize like what, what Zuko's been through. It's like, of course he's the way that he is. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. there's no other way he was going to turn out after all that. His only hope for a normal life. And I love that Iroh directly spells out. It's like, yeah, no, there is no coming back from this. There is no normal life. But at the same time, all Iroh's going to do is he's, he's going to help. He's just going to help Zuko. I don't know if they've gone into this, but like, I mean, I know that when Zuko was banished, he was like given some, I, I gotta wonder what those particular Fire Nation soldiers did to end up on that assignment. It's like, here, you you, you, you go with my, my, you're assigned to my banished nephew. Mm -hmm. It's like, what, what, what the fuck did these guys do to get that post? But I do get the sense that Iroh probably volunteered to, to go with Zuko. It's like, it was, he, he needs, he needs somebody in his corner. So I'm going to, I'm going to go off and, you know. Honestly, yeah. I kind of assume they were already Iroh's crew or at least had known about him. Oh, maybe, maybe uh, it was Iroh's ship. That, yeah. that, that that's actually makes sense. That maybe it was actually Iroh's ship. Yeah. Yeah. I figured Iroh took the people that were, that were near and dear to him and that would protect him with their lives to protect his nephew because yeah. that's how much he loves uh, Zuko, mm -hmm. you know? That's actually probably a good point that if it hadn't been for Iroh maybe doing that, that Zuko maybe, maybe they would have given him a little canoe yeah. and said, hey, good Here's luck. You know? Yeah. I really love the Blue Spirit as a follow-up. And for, for me, it kind of, I, I view the Storm and the Blue Spirit as not being a part one and a part two, but they're kind of companion episodes to each other in my mind yeah. because they, they they both deal with Zuko and Aang as, as kind of these separate protagonists who are yeah. opposed to each other. But we see even more so the parallels and, and we, 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 you know, that possibility of maybe Zuko and Aang don't always have to be enemies forever, you know, like, like that. That concept is kind of introduced in this episode, but I just love this episode. I don't know. Like, there, there's something like 
they're both great episodes, but in some ways I like the Blue Spirit. For me, I like the Blue Spirit even more than the Storm because there's just something about the atmosphere that this episode creates. I love how isolating it is for both Aang and Zuko for this whole episode that Aang doesn't have Katara and Sokka to rely on and Zuko doesn't have Iroh to rely on and, and they're both cut off and they, they don't they even... They have to rely on like, each like, other. Like, Aang doesn't even know it's Zuko for most of the episode, but no. he just has this one, you know, from his perspective, this mysterious character to, to rely on. And, and Zuko has to rely on Aang yeah. as they're both trying to escape this. I don't know. It's just such an interesting episode to it me. It is. Like, I always found it interesting they were able to synergize and work together so quickly, especially with the latter scene when they both immediately figured out what they were trying to do and, you know, pull off this incredible stunt. Zuko then threatening to kill Aang, and then even after that, Aang saving Zuko when, frankly, he could, and at the time, he would have been perfectly justified being like, all right, fine, I'll leave Zuko. He just tried to kill me. Well, I think also to to a certain degree, and it was it's not fun getting a couple swords to your throat, but I think Aang understood what that actually was. Right. That okay, this is a way for both of us to get out, and 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 which is pr- probably why Aang didn't struggle more because we've seen what he can do with Airbender. He possibly could have gotten out of that chokehold if he really wanted to. And again, I, I don't think, I'm not saying that Aang was comfortable with, again, being threatened in that way, but I think he, I think he knew that that was their ticket out of there, right. too, at the same time. It's a good Zhao episode, too. You know, Zhao is, is a great villain yeah. in, in this, uh... I like how apparently there's this whole squad of archers that are all just Hawkeye, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> They're all just, like, supernaturally good with the bow and arrow. <laughs> it's like, we have them guarding this one prison, but okay, fine, we'll use them for stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's also, I like that because it is a reminder that the non-benders are still incredibly capable on this show. And even, like, Zuko, who's... You know, obviously a bender himself, but I like that we get to see that his own skills are much more than we had thought. That he's not just that one trick. It's like, oh, he actually is a much more varied style. Something that was never trained to him by his parents. Well, we see in an earlier episode that he kicks a fucking boulder out of the air and then immediately, like, uses his heel to, like, shatter the chain that, that Iroh's <laughs> on. It's like, he didn't use firebending for that. It's like, Zuko's a, like a martial arts badass. Even without firebending. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the fortune teller is just a fun, goofy episode. It is. You know, I, is. there's just there's just a lot of humor in this episode. It's it's also a rom com episode. It's the first like Katang centric episode. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it's like, I know there's a lot of uh, this show and the fandom around the show is how I first found out about the concept of shipping. Because I don't think <laughs> I knew about shipping before the Avatar fandom. It's like people talk about Katang and Zutara. I'm like, what the fuck? And then what like, <laughs> okay, apparently that there's a whole shipping thing on on the internet. But <laughs> that's, his, that's his own whole culture there. And oh, good yeah. lord, did this show give a lot of uh, a lot of stuff for that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I feel like the ending of The Fortune Teller would make me feel like if I were Aang, why did I even try to help? Just yeah. with the whole, <laughs> well, no, she said nothing would happen and you were here, so nothing did happen. Oh, yeah. Can so I she just was right. say that I... 
whenever I watch this episode, I am Sokka mm-hmm. for the entire episode. Absolutely. Like, Sokka uh, is yes. just me. Like, <laughs> when, when the guy is like, can your science explain why it rains? And Sokka's like, yes! <laughs> yes! <laughs> like, thank you, Sokka. Like, oh my god. <laughs> it's one of those things where I love that he is kind of playing the comic relief and one who does fulfill that prophecy. He's like, uh, you're going to suffer a lot of misery, most of it self-inflicted. <laughs> but he's also completely 100% right the whole time. And I will say it does have one of my favorite unique jokes to this show that I don't think I've seen anywhere else, where the fortune teller is reading Egg's fortune, the bone explodes, she's like, oh my god, you're going to be embroiled in an epic conflict that good and evil that shapes the destiny of the world. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I know that part. Yeah, okay. <laughs> 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 that felt, I, I, I can't think of a specific parallel to one of his shows, but that felt very Joss Whedon oh, yeah. in, in like the writing of it. It was like the, the way yeah. something, something super dramatic is set up and then just immediately, you know, but we're yeah. not going to do that. But yeah, no, I, I just love that too. It was like, it's so dramatic. And it's like, yeah, I, I know that. That's what the entire fucking show is yeah. about. Uh-huh. Like, yeah. <laughs> but love. Yeah. That be is my day job. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Is no, I, I, I enjoy that. Like, I think I used to be more annoyed by the, the rom comy parts of this episode, but like, I, I appreciate it now. It's like, you know what? Kids yeah. at that age, that that is what their priorities are. Right. It's like it made sense. Like you know, I love that it hits her at the end too. I love that yeah. it, it kind of pings in her head. She's like, "Wait a minute, this isn't all." Well, it's the way. first time. It's the first time that the idea of Katang occurs to Katara yeah. because <laughs> it's been it's been very one sided. You know, the, the the whole time up and up until now. So it's like there's still a long ways to go before she sees Aang in that way. But it's the first time that she. It's the first time that it occurs to her that Aang could be an option, I guess. Yeah. yeah. You know? That sounds like a seasonal drink that comes out. Katang. I'm going to have myself some Katang. <laughs> <laughs> sounds, like Ooh, an, it sounds like an orange beverage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's very tangy. Yeah. <laughs> very tang, citrusy. Yes. <laughs> Space juice. <laughs> I also it. love that that you know that that girl. I think Mang is the character's name. She's right. she's voiced by the actress who later voices Toff in season two. Yeah, and, but oh. like I just love like the, just the end of the episode. She is like just floozy. <laughs> you know, talking about the guitar. It's like it's a great punchline for the episode. But yeah, <laughs> uh, Bato of the Water Tribe. Th- this this is a good guitar and Sokka episode. It's actually a great episode for the whole trio. But it's a good guitar and Sokka centric episode that of uh, where. They, they encounter somebody that is kind of their connection to their home and to their father and everything. Like, it's a good episode, you know. It's an early uh, uh, time that, that doesn't happen very much where Aang just, like, makes a, a, a big... Like, like he makes a very morally dubious uh, decision, which he of course immediately feels guilty about, and then it's right. like reversing. But you know, in, in terms of not sharing the map to Sokka and Katara, you know, because he's a, because he has these abandonment issues. I feel like this is kind of abandonment issues. The episode, it is, yeah. honestly, <laughs> yeah. Potter, who is left behind, Katara and Sokka, who are left behind, and Aang, who is left behind. <laughs> 
Of course, June and the sheer shoe uh, honestly steal this whole episode, too. They do. It's like... <laughs> I do find it weird that at some point she's just arm wrestling uh, that character from Street Fighter at one point. Yeah, it's like Ryu. <laughs> she's arm wrestling Ryu from Street Fighter. It's like it's, he's it's wearing the even, exact same fucking... Yeah, it's not even like a little bit Ryu. It's like, no, that is actually just Ryu. Okay, all right. <laughs> No, I thought that every time I watched the episode, it's like, it's Ryu! What? <laughs> yeah, it's a fun episode. I like, again, that it is reinforcing that Sokka is, in many ways, he is the plan guy, he is a technical guy, um, he knows more about steering the boat and actually is able to direct everyone. And, correct me if I'm wrong, he's also the one that comes up with the plan with the perfume in the end, right? Or am I thinking of something good? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, I just right. I just love that. It's like when they go to tactics or good ideas, you go to Sokka the whole time. And I think they actually did that in Fortune Teller too, where he planned that whole. Yeah, anyhow, I, that's one thing I like about these series of episodes is reinforcing the idea that Sokka is not just there to be the sarcastic guy who gets taken no, out of the fight the tactician. every he's two seconds. He's not just the meat and boomerang guy. He's also yeah, the, he's the planner. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I make the plans. <laughs> oh, so when you make the plan, we don't need you anymore? Well, no, if anything fails, then I make another plan. <laughs> oh, so you make bad plans. <laughs> <laughs> Also, guest star alert, uh, it's like Bato is voiced by Richard McGonagall, who's the actor who plays Sully in the Uncharted games. And I believe June is voiced by Jennifer Hale. I don't know yeah. if I actually look at it. Okay, yeah. Also, some great voice actors in this in this episode, too. Oh, so. yeah. Absolutely fantastic. I do also like the brief tour that uh, June, uh, Zuko, and Iroh have going through previous episodes. I like that Iroh's just like a dirty old man when it comes to June, yeah. too. Me, too. <laughs> <laughs> Little Master Roshi comes out in him. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Might be old, but he's still horny. <laughs> well, it's not dead. He's yeah. got little blue pills. <laughs> it is. Uh, I keep forgetting how many times he does just like constantly flirt with people throughout the show. He does. And yeah. Somehow it keeps working for him too. <laughs> <laughs> it does. He's got he's that charisma charmer. stat. Yep. He's got yep. that high charisma. <laughs> he's got himself a demon in his pocket. <laughs> you know, one thing I like about the episode of The Deserter is I like the fact that Zhang Zhang the whole time is like against teaching Aang. And the only reason that he agrees to teach Aang is because Avatar Roku appears to him in a vision and tells him, hey, you got to teach Aang, which I guess that actually really was the spirit of Roku. But I like it when they show that, hey, I'm getting wisdom from these old avatars. Sometimes the old avatars are wrong. Sometimes they fuck up, too, and I, I actually like that fallibility. It's like, yeah. afterwards, Roku was like, okay, yeah, he actually wasn't right for that, so my bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those things where, in some ways, it's a useful lesson for Aang, in that he figures out why he has to learn, you know, fire and water bending first. It's interesting that Aang does make mistakes in these early episodes that kind of add to his trauma, and this is one that sticks with him for a while. He doesn't oh, let yeah. go of this for a while, and when he does, it's barely that he forgives himself for this. And I also like that we get this early idea of the philosophy of firebending, mostly because that's something that evolves over the course of the show, but this early understanding shows what the Fire Nation currently understands firebending to be, which is volatile and dangerous and almost a curse to someone who doesn't want to be destructive. 
Yeah, John Jong is an interesting character because, again, he, he does view firebending. Like, he is a firebending master, but he views firebending as being that curse and that that burden. And it, I, I think it's interesting that we find out, again, foreshadow report in season three, that there, no, there's actually a lot more to firebending than, than just the destructive side of it. And, and even someone who is considered a master like Zhang Zhang hasn't really discovered that yet. But he is an interesting character. He's, he's a sad character. He's definitely very jaded. But no, it's, it's, it's a really good episode. Episode. And I, I I like that it is Aang's first experience with firebending and how, how horribly wrong it does go. Mm-hmm. But out of it, Katara does learn that she is also a healer. That And, and I, I like that she learns that, that ability too. I'm sorry. I thought she was a bit of an overreactor for until she decided that she could heal herself. I mean... I was like, come I on. Saw when you look at her hands, it's like, those are clearly like at least second degree burns. So, uh... Not over. You gotta remember they had to tone it down a little bit for Nickelodeon, but you know. (laughs) Sure. And then you just healed them. I don't want to hear it. Yeah, crap. Yeah, she forgives him right after the healing. Third degree burns. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe two and a half. I think it's hilarious that she's the one that has to talk him down. He's like, ah, I'm horrible. Ah. She's like, no, no, no. It's okay. It's okay. She's like, get it. Stop. Get over yourself. I'm fine. We ain't got time for this shit. (laughs) Yeah. But actually, I also love it, the fact that after um, they find out that, that she can heal and they're asking, like, well, how long have you been able to do that? She's like, oh, I guess I always do. I love how Sokka's like, well, thanks for all the fucking first aid over the years. <laughs> like, <laughs> because, like, oh, I'm sorry. Like, that, that's like, that, that, to me, that's also kind of calling out, like, cliche writing of, like, yeah. oh, I, I always knew deep down. It's like. Did you, though? No, you did you? Did, did you relate? Like, <laughs> did you? Did you? When, when I was dying, did you? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Northern Air Temple. Uh, really fun episode two. It's like we give some, some some cool new characters. Like I uh, I mostly just really like the siege of the Northern Air Temple mm-hmm. sequence at the end. It's just a really cool, pretty epic battle sequence. Uh, and also, also what a great Sokka episode. This is a great Sokka Absolutely. episode. Like, yeah. He's not just the idea guy, but also the invention guy. Yes. And I do find it kind of hilarious how, not hilarious, but just kind of unexpected, how you get an idea of this almost medieval-esque uh, tech level for the world that you're in. And then you have this episode where you're like, oh yeah, I guess bending does allow them to make a few leaps ahead in a few different areas. Like, mm-hmm. all of a sudden, these goddamn super tanks and war blimps. Yeah. It's like, Oh, okay. Uh, I guess this is a little different. Yeah, it's just a fun sequence. I like that debate over where exactly do you draw the line between progress and respecting the past. For sure. And even that hint of, you know, when technology runs amok, it's like, oh, yes, we invented this brand new tool. So do the bad guys. They get it, too. Yeah. I like the the unexpected consequence at the end of the episode. Yes. That being, yeah. Just can't trust that Fire Nation. Nope. Don't trust them. They nope. will roast your nuts every time. Chest can't do it anymore because you know what happened to Chest? Chestnuts were roasting over an open fire. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to give you that one, Liz. <laughs> Now, 
if you tied it the- back into an earlier episode and said Jets. <laughs> <laughs> Jets nuts were roasting over and over. God damn it. That would have been genius. <laughs> you were this so I had to do the one cough. <laughs> had to do the one cough. <laughs> one cough. I got one yeah. cough. Okay. Okay. That's good. <laughs> Fair enough. I got a gag response from Sam. That's all that yeah. matters. <laughs> I love this three-parter uh, with the, the Northern Water Tribe arc that, that ends out the season as well. It's like, and we've been spending the whole season trying to get to the Northern Water Tribe, and we finally yeah. get there. I like that we spent three full episodes in the Northern Water Tribe, too. Uh, you know, the first part of it, the waterbending master, we deal again with the kind of the ingrained patriarchal misogynistic society um, of, of the Water Tribe and Katara having to overcome that, you know. I always get the sense that Paku is really the only one that he's like from an older generation that maybe he's the only one that really gives a shit. Because like I get yeah. the sense the chief that doesn't really give a shit if Katara learns no. the or not. You That's know, the like- definitely <laughs> the impression I got. And also, it is kind of amazing how quickly everyone else gets on board once Paku changes his mind. It's like, yeah, he was definitely the vanguard of that particular train of thought. Strom Thurmond. Listen, we don't necessarily agree with his views, but he has tenure in waterbending right. college. So <laughs> <Damn> like... <it. laughs> he could outvote us mm-hmm. all. Yeah. <laughs> that really is what it he, feels he like to me. Like, oh, he is in the waterbending company. You know, it's. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I know. I kind of love that Katara doesn't win the fight. Like, of course, Paco won. He's a goddamn master. He's been training, you know, yeah. ages longer. But it still serves her point. Like, she proves... It does. ...that she is every bit as capable as anyone else, and... She holds her yeah. own, and he acknowledges the fact that she holds her own, yeah. And I... And I do love Even that. like that he realizes that it was exactly these sorts of traditions and attitudes that, yeah, kind of ruined his own life a little bit, and made him into such <laughs> a grumpy old asshole. Yeah. He reminds me of those old men that you hear, well, I used to li- I used to work in the Navy. It was great. And then they started bringing women in and they replaced us all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the 50s was such a simpler time where you could just. <laughs> you know, when you didn't have to. Women stayed home in the kitchen. You didn't have to worry about what the women folk thought or the minorities thought. And <laughs> you were vaguely aware that there were some confirmed bachelors, but you didn't have to be actually pay attention to them. <laughs> <laughs> now women talk but if you just ignore them and let them go they'll forget all about it they're simple creatures mm. give her a piece of cheese she'll be good <laughs> what the fuck <laughs> once again people will use the out of context uh, sound clips from the podcast to cancel us <laughs> they said that women should stay in the kitchen and are fascinated by cheese which <laughs> Well, I, I can I can attest that women are fascinated by cheese. To be fair, cheese, everyone but... is fascinated by cheese. And I do think that women should be in the kitchen and men should be in the kitchen. Everyone should be in the kitchen. There's food there. We should all go to the kitchen. Except for the baby. The... No, no, you no, no, no. accidentally no. put the baby in the oven. Don't encourage people. When I'm in the kitchen and I am cooking, nobody else can be in the all kitchen. Right, fair enough. All right, everyone, if I'm cooking, get the fuck so out of the kitchen. So everyone should be in the kitchen because... unless Sam is in the kitchen. So No matter what, no matter where you sit, you will be right in front of the drawer that I need to get to. I promise you. Like, <laughs> Note to self. I, I cook like Julia Childs. I'm loud and I move around and I knock things over and I'm messy. I think that's what Julia Childs was. <laughs> you know, on the subject of shipping, I gotta say, my favorite ships on this show are always the Sokka ones. Mm-hmm. Like, 
Yeah, I know it's I know it's the doomed romance, but I actually really like Sokka and Yue. I honestly do. Oh, I think yeah. I think they have chemistry. I really do. I, I, I yeah, they're good together. I'm more of a sucker for the uh, Suki Sokka one. I prefer Suka, but I also like Sokka and Su- Yue too. Like it's it's part of his it's part of his development. It too, is, but yeah, it's interesting seeing him play the line between feeling completely out of depth, out of his depth, and also trying to be suave and. Cool at the same time it's it does show a different side of Sokka a much more sensitive side than you usually see yeah for sure yeah, so this two-parter The Siege of the North just a really epic action-packed ending to season one Again, it's, it's suitably epic in the way that a season finale should be. I will say there's one character who I didn't fully appreciate the first time I saw this, but I recently realized what purpose he actually serves is um, UA's fiance, the schmuck guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the reason I came to like his inclusion is that on rewatch, he is exactly where Sokka started this season. He is a smug, mm-hmm. self-absorbed man who who is certain of his own knowledge, certain of his own place, and seemingly uncaring, and he's everything that Sokka has already grown beyond. Yeah. That character was completely worth including just for the one moment where they've been building up this whole secret plan of we're going to sneak in and we're going to take out the Admiral. And it says like, what's going to happen to this plan? And then there's just like a normal scene of dialogue between Zhao and Iroh where all of a sudden dude pops up it's like, Admiral Cho, prepare to meet your maker. And he, like, runs up to him, and without even reacting, Xiao just, like, he doesn't even fire, but he just, like, grabs him by by the wrist and throws him off the fucking ship. And then he and Iroh just resume their conversation without even acknowledging it. It is so good. Like... (laughs) It is. And so, yeah, that character to me was worth including just for that one moment. Once again, did that guy die? I don't know. Unclear. <laughs> we never see him again either, so. Who knows? <laughs> Hopefully so. <laughs> one, one can only dream. It's like the, the AU or UA does not have to become the moon. Maybe that actually would have worked out with her. It's like, it's like oh, the guy died. Oh, right, All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so sad. Uh, uh, can I date Sokka now? <laughs> <laughs> I don't see why not. Sure, okay. <laughs> Presenting the absolutely worst uh, chieftain on the Northwater Tribe impression. <laughs> no, this this is a suitably epic two parter. I love. I love the brief jaunt we get back in the spirit world because um, we'd already seen glimpses of it, but this is our first real look at the spirit world itself, uh, the same way the spirits yeah. see it. And it's just so otherworldly and bizarre. And it's it, it's such a fantastic rendition. The tree that seems to be blocking out the all light um, right above it. Um, Goddamn, talking about fantastic creature character designs, Ko the Face Dealer oh my is God. Yeah. so fucking memorable. We want to talk about, again, in a kid's show, a scene that is actually genuinely terrifying. Ko the Face Dealer, this is a really scary scene. Yeah. Like, and it's so well done. I love this scene so much. It's so, it's so creepy the whole time, and there's real tension in it. And there's that moment when Ko shows the face of... Um, I think it was Kurok's, uh 
a great love. And again, props to the showrunners. They have Aang completely expressionless because he has to be, but you get that idea that somehow he does recognize this face yeah. from this previous life. And oh god, it's it's such a tense, terrifying scene. It's fantastic. It's scary as hell. Yeah. And it also doesn't hurt that Ko's voice is fantastic. Yeah. Ah, who's that actor? Oh, who I actually forgot who, who voiced Ko as well. He shows he shows up in everything. He's fantastic. I don't think it's Kevin Michael Richardson, but it, it's, it's kind of a similar, very bassy voice. Um, Eric Dellums. Okay. He's never someone I recognize by name, but his voice shows up constantly. Yeah. No, he's really fucking good. Yeah, and that, that, that's such a good scene. Uh, but yeah, just a great finale also because every character has something to do. Say like, oh, so-and-so is a great sock episode or this is a great guitar episode. This is just a great episode for everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, it it's, it's a great Aang episode, you know, with his journey through the spirit world and then like him merging with the ocean spirit at the end. It's a great, there's a great kaiju sequence, basically, you know. Right. Yeah. It's a great episode for Sokka with his whole storyline with Yue. It's a great episode for Katara of like really coming into her, her power in, in, in these last couple episodes of the season and like her excellent fight scenes with Zuko. Mm-hmm. I love the when they when they have a rematch against each other and Katara says, "Trust me, it's not gonna be much of a match." And it's not. She just she just knocks him out like in like two seconds flat. It's like boom. It, it's it's so satisfying. But I like the bossiness of of it. The fact that they do that Zhao does actually kill the Moon Spirit mm-hmm. and then Yue yeah. essentially has to physically die in in order to become the new Moon Spirit. You know, it's like. It's a really bittersweet ending, but a really beautiful ending, I feel. It's really cool, yeah. And just the... God, the color work after Zhao kills the Moon Spirit and the entire world goes shades of gray and red, except for the bursts of firebending, is such such a... Yue's eyes are the only eyes that still have color. Mm. And that's a great hint that, you know, because that Moon Spirit is in her. So, So she, like... And, like, Katara and Sokka have blue eyes, but their eyes are grayscale, but her eyes are are still blue Mm -hmm. there, which I love that subtle detail, Absolutely. We mentioned already that the animation in this show started fantastic, and you are absolutely right. The second half of the season um, already showed leaps and bounds, but this episode was just so creative and gorgeous the whole way through. And... You did touch on this earlier, but I do feel it bears repeating, especially at this point, that the soundtrack for this show is... The soundtrack for The Last Airbender and Legend of Korra kind of remain unparalleled for me amongst most other shows I've seen. I can see that. They're inventive, they're evocative, often quite fun, and in cases like this, do so much to sell the majesty and impact of these moments. You know, much more than just the animation could alone. I love that Iroh talks the talk and he walks the walk, Mm -hmm. too. It's like, as he tells Zhao, whatever you do to that fish, I will unleash on you tenfold. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he does it. And he does. The second second Zhao kills that fucking fish, Iroh just goes like, he, he... yeah. It's like just the, 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 the goes vicious. He goes vicious with his firebend. He's like, no, I'm not fucking around. I love like, that <laughs> moment when Zhao starts fighting back for a second and then he realizes how quickly his entire contingent of guards he brought with him are being taken out like nothing yes. by Iroh and he just fucking hightails it. It's like, oh, okay. 
right? Yeah. No, I this, I would absolutely lose this, and IROE is absolutely going to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta go! Adios! I love, ultimately, that Zhao is killed by the ocean spirit, because that, that to me, is... That's yeah. his comeuppance for, for killing the moon spirit, because, you know, we see, like, the ocean moon spirit have, like, the, this, this intense connection with each other, and we see the ocean spirit is really mourning for the loss of, of that original moon spirit, and, you know, it, it, the, the spirit is obviously calmed to a degree when UA becomes the replacement, but at the same time, it's like, you're not getting away with that, and th- and that's and that's Zhao, he was the author of his own destruction in that way, he meddled with yeah. forces he didn't understand, and those forces, you fought back, mm-hmm. and it's, it's a good death for him, I, I actually... With all the animosity between Zuko and Zhao, including Zhao attempting to murder Zuko in, in or, you know, a couple episodes prior and almost doing it, I like that Zuko reaches out for Zhao as, as Zhao's being taken under. You know, it just shows that the, like, Zuko can't help but be a good-hearted person at, 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 at his core, despite how messed up he is. And it's know? even interesting that Zhao, who is clearly a little bit of a coward, at the very end decides very pointedly not to take Zuko's hand. Just... Yeah. He accepts his fate. It's like, well, he, he knows that's it for him. Yep. And he's just like... All right. I just have to give one last metaphorical fuck you to Zuko. Exactly. <laughs> On my way out. Exactly. <laughs> I do have one question, though. Mm-hmm. Yes. Thing. It's it's a little bit of a disappointment. Uh, my first question is, how do the Fire Nation, how do they actually call on the fire? They, these actually explained earlier in both the Zhang Zhang episode and in this, is that fire does essentially come from heat. Like, all the elements come from somewhere. Fire is literally just heat. And for the most part, a lot of one of their biggest sources of it is the sun, literally. And so during the day, they're able to call on the warmth of the sun and expand that, turn that into fire. And also from the breath in that they're literally igniting their own oxygen and the oxygen around yes. them when they call in fire. Can funding. I just say they missed the opportunity to ignite farts? To make that part of the canon, you got the (laughs) methane right there. Your body makes it naturally. Just hold your farts in and don't worry. It's just one more show until you get the fart bending. Way, way too much fart bending. (laughs) I'm a fart bender. God but yeah, it. no, I, I think you explained it better than, than I could have, Zach. But but yeah, but that's that the case that firebenders are essentially solar panels, you know, that during the day they can uh, absorb and store the, the, the heat from sunlight and they can also use the breath to, to heat their own oxygen. Yeah. And at night they have their farts. Yes. And I, they have their farts. Well, I'm saying at <laughs> night yeah, they I'm have sorry. to store it up sunlight from the day. All right, whatever. <laughs> They're solar panels, Liz. <laughs> <laughs> but that's something that I really appreciate about the show is that, you know, it, it was important to the, the creators to not have it be just this kind of Harry Potter magic thing that bending for all four benders, it, it's a physical yes. act. It comes from... It is mystical, but it also comes from a physical place. It comes from their yes, body. There's chemistry to it. Th- that's something that I, I think the, um, the the Shyamalan movie really kind of missed, even though well, they, they also did a weird thing where most firebenders have to actually have a source of fire nearby, except like Iroh is able to like do. But like it, it, that was just a weird thing to me. But 
But they also made the mistake of, he, he tried to like have it both ways, but like, because I feel like, okay, so the firebenders are using like external sources of fire, but the bending also feels overly mystical because of the fact that they're having to do like all these crazy, you know, they're having to do like 10 different movements before they right. can like move a single rock or whatever. And, you know, it just wasn't well thought out in that movie as opposed to like this show where everything is really well thought out. And there was a lot of thought that went into it. It's incredible how how well they translated every martial arts movement into the actual bending. Like, how well you could see a particular move. It's like someone makes a stance and a rock shows up, and it is done in such a way that it feels logical. It's like, yeah, that's the movement you would make to have that exact action occur. And also doing so in a way that incorporated... Um, you know, based on real life martial arts movements, like they did have, uh, you know, choreographer going in with martial arts disciplines to serve as the basis for these bending disciplines. Yeah, it, as you said, it was incredibly thoughtful and impactful and it made it feel less like, oh, we're casting a magic spell and more this person is innately connected to the world and is shifting. Yeah, so shout out to uh, Sifu Kisu, who was the, um, the the martial arts expert who helped to choreograph a lot of the, the fight scenes and a lot of the bending moves on the show. And you know, he was very much a part of the, just the basic DNA of this show because it was also his idea to have a different real life martial arts discipline be the basis of each of the bending moves you know that like earth bending is I, I, I can't say off the top of my head you know which was which but like fire bending is based on a specific uh, uh, martial yeah. art and earth bending is based on a specific martial art and they were also smart like he, he worked with with Kanitsko and DiMartino to uh, find martial arts that do work like thematically with each of the elements you know like I know the waterbending one is, is a lot more flowing stances and like the earthbending is like very solid and grounded but they also were able to find martial arts that have very big and very broad movements because those translate better into animation as a medium than more subtle styles you know and there, there was just a lot of thought that went into that and that's why I think that this show for me has some of the best fight choreography of any animated show that I've ever seen absolutely like it's just bar none I think it is just and it's so funny when you hear uh, Brian Canesco and DiMartino talk about this show in hindsight and how they were disappointed by a lot of the things. It's like, oh, we weren't able to do like as much as we really wanted to. It's like this show is fucking amazing. <laughs> like the animation in the fight scenes. It's like, yeah, there, there's always going to be limitations. But like this is still like miles ahead of like most other animated shows at yeah. the time, you know, and even today, frankly, yeah. as an artist, you're always going to wish you were able to take it one step further. But absolutely. Yeah. They they really did nail it they absolutely nailed it well i think we're ready to go into our overall thoughts on a score of one out of ten liz i'm very curious to hear what your overall <laughs> thoughts on this on book one of avatar are i mean to be honest it's a lot of fun to watch and when you have time on your hands to just watch tv it's kind of nice uh it brings back memories watching through it because of the first time i i watched it but I really enjoyed the story, and I really enjoyed the characters. There's so much going on in it, and I love that – I do love that it is a simple story. You know, it's not overly complex. As far as the show goes, I'll, I really only watch it whenever I'm going to talk about it 
it's just one of those things. I This is probably the fourth time that I'm going through watching it. So, you know, it's not one of the ones that I watch over and over and over again. But it is fun. And I think it's one of the best things Nickelodeon put out, to be honest. There are moments, there are episodes that bog down for me, but they're necessary. You know, there are episodes that I feel like, uh, okay, well, we got to get through this because it's part of the story. But most of it is, is a lot of fun. And I do have to give it, I do have to give it a seven out of 10. So I will go ahead and say that this is my least favorite season of the show, which is saying a lot because there are some absolute gold episodes in this season. And I don't just mean some, I mean most of the episodes in this season are frankly fantastic. Um, the overall storyline, the character development we get is remarkably refreshing. Uh, the animation, especially the fight choreography, is something that you frankly would not have seen before for an animated show like this and to be frank rarely see ever since and you know I've, I've said everything about the music with that said this season was still kind of finding its way there are some are some early animation hiccups which are understandable but you know do show up on rewatch um, some of the characterization um, and especially some of what we see about the world is still kind of finding itself, but it is still fantastic. And even in this, what I kind of view as a little more raw, unpolished version of what the rest of the show would become. Even so, even straight out of the gate, it remained, it's a classic, and I do give it a 9 out of 10. Yeah, when I first watched this, again, I was probably about 13 years old, and I was just immediately sucked into this show and immediately hooked, and... I guess, like, I'm a semi-OG when it comes to Avatar because I started, again, I think I started catching up on it when it was in Season 2, and by the time I got to the end of Season 2, I was caught up with the airing, and I and I watched Season 3 as it aired. So, I, I, again, I know a lot of people found it after the fact, but I, I, and I, I was sort of an OG. I do think that this is a show that I keep coming back to as a kid, as a teenager, in college, as an adult now, and like I'm well into adulthood, and I, I can still watch this show, and yeah, I mean, it's a kid's show, but basically, this show realized that the way to make a really good kid's show is to not talk down to kids. Like, we can make a kid's show that is complex yes. and interesting, and it can have like morally gray elements to it, it can have really dark elements to it. There are still elements of the show that are a little goofier and do feel a little more kid-oriented, but I also get that because it is a kid's show, and I can still appreciate some of the, the goofier humorous moments on the show, you know, even though occasionally they do go for the juvenile jokes of, you know, Sokka getting sneezed on with green snot and shit like that. Which, <laughs> but, you know, but it still works. Like, you know, you, you can still have those moments here and there. The Great Divide is my least favorite episode, and it's still really fun, you know? And I, I think that there are episodes that are not perfect within the season, but the overall trajectory of the season, like, like it, it, it just... It's great character arcs. It's great momentum for the story. And the story is simple, but again, it has all the, these these interesting asides within it. And it really is the perfect blend of episodic storytelling and serialized storytelling. And I agree. I think it is probably the best thing Nickelodeon's ever made. And, yeah. and I'm a mm -hmm. big SpongeBob fan. I'm a big Invader Zim fan. But I still think that Avatar is probably the best show they've done. 
So book one, I'm also going to give a nine out of 10. I think that it's really, really fucking solid. And they were finding themselves a little bit, but even the episodes where they're finding themselves, they're still great. It's still great television, so... All right. Well, we're just going to do one more podcast for nerd shit for the rest of the year. Um, We're going to take a little bit of it, probably a two week break for the holidays, but we're going to go ahead and rein in the holidays with last year's Christmas action film, Violent Night with David Harbour, the Santa Claus Christmas action movie. So that is coming next week. And then we are going to be taking a little bit of a brief hiatus before coming back in January of 2024. Yeah. Yeah. Very excited. Happy holidays, everybody. Happy holidays. Happy holidays, you filthy animal. Nerd Shit is edited by the three of us, as well as Sharon D. Wilson. Our music is composed by Sam Wilson. Hey, that's me! You can follow us on all social media platforms at The Nerd Shit Pod. That's Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and X, all at The Nerd Shit Pod. Make sure that you're subscribed to Nerd Shit anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Don't forget to leave us a review and a star rating. And tell all your friends about us like a nice cult. Spread us around like herpes. Nerd shit, nerd shit. So strap on in because we're talking about the nerd shit. Stay shitty, nerds.